Section 25 of The Art of Music, Volume 1, The Pre-Classic Periods. Editor-in-Chief, Daniel Gregory Mason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Jake Melizia. What Alessandro Scarlatti did for opera in Italy, Lully had done for opera in France. The French opera, like the English opera, of which we have the one splendid example in Purcell's Dido Ananias, was of quite distinct origin from the Italian. Whereas the Italian opera sprang from attempts to restore the method of combining music and dramatic declamation practised by the Greeks, the French opera developed from a form of entertainment that had long flourished in France and was dear to the hearts of the French people, the ballet. The famous Ballet Comique de la Roine, given in Paris at the Petit Bourbon on the 15th of October 1581, in honour of the marriage of the Duc de Joyeuse and Mademoiselle de Vaudemont, sister of King Henry III, is in a sense the first attempt in France toward what we now call opera. It was a magnificent spectacle in which songs, choruses and dancing played a part. The plan of it was made by Balthazar de Beaujoyeux, whose real name was Baltasarini, groom of the chamber to the king and the queen mother, Catherine de Medici. The music was by the Chieur de Beaulieu, whose true name was probably Lambert, and another composer called Salmon, and the verses were by one named La Chenaille. A few excerpts from a contemporary account of the performance will best illustrate what the ballet was. It was given before the king and his mother, and an assemblage of the highest nobles in France. As for the overture, the writer of the account says, after some measure of silence had been established, there came from behind the walls the sound of oboes, cornets, sackbuts, trombones, and other sweet-toned instruments. After this, the Chier de la Roche, escaping from a garden at the back of the hall, came and delivered an address before the king. He was followed by the sorceress Circe, from whom he had evidently escaped, and was bent on having him back again but he eluded her, and she returned to her garden. Then three sirens and a triton appeared and sang a chorus, which was echoed by singers concealed in a golden arch at the back of the hall. They disappeared, and an immense fountain was drawn upon the stage by two seahorses. And about the fountain twelve naiads were grouped, among whom were ladies of highest rank, covered with gold and jewels. The fountain was drawn round the room, spouting real water, surrounded by eight tritons playing lutes, harps, etc., and by a dozen pages or more bearing lighted torches, all singing. After this chorus, Glaucus and Thetis took their place in chairs at the foot of the fountain, and sang a little dialogue to which the tritons answered in chorus. The fountain was then drawn off behind Circe's garden, and ten violinists came forward, dressed in white satin, hung with gold, and played for the first dance, which was taken by the twelve pages and the twelve naiads who had returned. Circe appeared, furious, from her garden, and laid all the dancers under her spell so that they stood motionless, and then she retired to her garden, swollen with victory. Suddenly there was a loud clap of thunder, and Mercury appeared, descending in a cloud from which he sang. He then stepped from his cloud and freed the dancers from Circe's spell, whereupon they at once took up the dance again. 
Mercury went back to his cloud, and Circe came again upon the scene, and bewitched not only the dancers, but Mercury himself, whose cloud would not conceal him, so that they all followed her, two by two, into her fatal garden. And here the garden was brilliantly lit, and the spectators saw, walking therein, a stag, a dog, an elephant, a lion, a tiger, and various other beasts who were once men, who now had undergone Circe's spell. The first act ended here. The second act opened with a five-part song for satyrs, to which the golden vault replied in echo. A forest advanced across the floor of the hall, a forest with a rock in the middle, and oak trees hung with garlands of gold, and four dryads to whom the satyrs sang a song of welcome. The forest went before the king, and from its leafy depths a young dryad delivered a speech to him. Then the forest turned to the left and proceeded to Pan's grotto. Here Pan welcomed the dryads with a tune on his flute, and they complained to him of Circe, who had imprisoned not only their playmates the naiads, but Mercury himself as well. Thereupon Pan promised his aid, and the wood went away. Entered then the four virtues, two of whom played upon the lute, while the other two sang a little duet. The golden vault responded with an instrumental piece in five parts, and then Minerva approached in a car drawn by a huge serpent, Minerva bringing the head of Medusa. She delivered yet another address to the king, and invoked Jupiter, who, after a few claps of thunder, descended in a cloud. He stood on his cloud and sang a song, after which the cloud deposited him upon the floor, and he went off with Minerva to Pan's grotto. Poor Pan was soundly scolded by Minerva for having let Circe steal away the naiads and Mercury. Pan, though replying that the power to overcome Circe belonged alone to Minerva, nonetheless started off for Circe's garden, followed by eight satyrs armed with knobbed and thorny clubs. Minerva went along too to the assault, but Jupiter was left alone on the stage. Once before Circe's stronghold, that wily lady harangued her assailants and made fun of Minerva and of Jupiter. To Jupiter she said, If any one is destined to triumph over me, it is the king of France, to whom you, even as I, must yield the realm you possess. Minerva and her heroes broke down the door of Circe's garden, and Jupiter struck the lady herself with a thunderbolt, who thereupon fell senseless to the floor. Minerva got possession of the magic wand, released those who had been chained by Circe's spell, and at last restored Circe herself, who joined with her to lead a procession of all who had taken part in the play around the hall, then followed a grand ballet before the king. This performance of the Ballet Comique de l'Héroïne lasted five hours and a half, and the cost of producing it was more than 3,600,000 francs. This was approximately a century before the performance of Berenice in Padua, of which mention has been made in a previous chapter. But whereas the Italian opera degenerated into a scenic display, the French opera resulted from a cutting down of lavish extravagance and uniting the various scenes with choruses with musical declamation. The ballet remained the favourite diversion of the French court down to the middle of the 17th century, though the splendour of this ballet comique was never reproduced. Though it approached what we now call opera, it remained differentiated from opera in a few fundamental points. Parts were taken by members of the court society. 
the whole entertainment was planned to flatter the king so that the lines spoken by the players were often directed to the monarch in the manner of circe's lesson to jupiter which we have just quoted and there were long addresses without music and without relation to the plot of the ballet in sixteen forty five and sixteen forty six cardinal mazarin invited italian singers to give an exhibition of their opera in paris they were coldly received in perrin's famous letter to his protector the cardinal della rovera april thirtieth sixteen fifty nine the italian music was likened to plain song and airs from the cloister yet it was with the aim of making an opera for the french on the plan of the italian opera that perrin wrote his pastoral in sixteen fifty nine for which Combert composed the music. This pastoral in music, called sometimes L'Opera d'Issy, was performed at Issy, near Paris, with great success. There was present such a crowd of princes, dukes, peers, and marshals of France that the whole way from Paris to Issy was thronged with their coaches. There was not room in the hall for all who came. Those who could find no place were patient, promenading through the gardens or holding court on the lawns by express order of his majesty louis the fourteenth the pastoral was repeated at the palace of vincennes so french opera was inaugurated of combert who wrote the music little is known he had lessons on the harpsichord from chambonnier the nestor of french clavecinists he was organist at the church of saint honore and following the success of the pastoral he was appointed superintendent of music to anne of austria mother of louis the fourteenth for more than ten years after the pastoral perrin and combert kept relatively silent there are a few drinking songs by combert which belong to this time but the two men rest in obscurity until the first performance of their opera pomone on the nineteenth of march sixteen seventy one at the tennis court near the rue guenegaud in sixteen sixty nine perrin had obtained from louis the fourteenth the permit to establish throughout the kingdom academies of opera or representations with music in the french language after the manner of those in italy perrin secured combert to write the music for these representations and pomone their joint product is the first opera publicly performed in paris a great part of their singers had been recruited from churches in the country but the success of this first performance was enormous only the music of one act has been preserved it is childish but at moments may stand favourably by that of lully what makes it so heavy to our ears are the long passages of dull unrhythmical recitative which from the point of view of music are vague and ill-informed to combert and perrin must be given the honour of having established french opera to them was awarded the first royal warrant to give opera throughout the kingdom pomone was an auspicious beginning but within a year trouble had come between the two men and combert's next opera was set to words by another poet gilbert well known in his day and then apparently as sequence to the split between combert and perrin combert was himself deprived of his royal rights the opera was given into the hands of one sole man who had long been plotting to acquire it and combert departed to england this one man jean baptiste lully 
was born in Florence, or near there, in 1633. He had come to Paris when a boy of twelve or thirteen, in the suite of the Duc de Guise, knowing little of music, save the guitar. He had been a kitchen boy in the service of Mademoiselle de Montpensier, and now, in 1672, was given sole control over opera throughout the Kingdom of France. The way in which he won favour with the king shows him to have been an intriguer, and the king to have had little genuine appreciation of music apart from the tunes to which he danced in the court ballets. Lully was at first admitted into the king's band of violins, and later was made head of a special band. Not only was he a ready composer of dances to the king's taste, he was himself a dancer and a mimic. In Moliere's comedy ballets to which he was commissioned to compose music, he often acted with much admired skill. As to his treatment of Moliere, the less said, perhaps, the better. He was a skilful manager. He was always ready with some amusement for the court. From the start he played for the royal favour, and he won it. Not only was he given the sole authority to produce operas in France, Combert was even denied the right to produce his as well. Lully had no systematic training as musician, but he learned from all he came in contact with from Combert, who had written music for the ballets, from Cavalli, who came to Paris with his Xerxes in 1660, and again with Ercole Amante in 1662, to both of which Lully was commissioned to set ballets that they might meet with the requirements of French courtly taste. From 1672, when he gained control of the opera, to his death in 1687, he wrote an opera, a tragédie lyrique, every year. His manner of composing, according to Le Cerf de la Viville, 1705, was as follows. He read the libretto until he knew it nearly by heart. He would then sit down at his harpsichord, sing over the words again and again, pounding the harpsichord. His snuff-box at one end of it, the keys dirty and covered with tobacco, for he was very slovenly. When he had finished singing and had got his songs well in his head, his secretaries, Lalouette or Colas, came, and to them he dictated. The next day he could hardly remember what he had dictated. Lully was a clever, exceedingly intelligent man, a good actor, a good clown, a good dancer, an unscrupulous plotter, an iron disciplinarian. Not only did he write the music to his operas, he superintended and often remodelled the libretti furnished him by Quinault, the poet of his own choosing. He was indefatigably painstaking. He coached the singers even to the way they should enter and leave the stage, and he drilled the orchestra so that it had a precision, the traditions of which endured for more than a century. He was not a great musician. One may believe that he left the filling out of his harmonies to his secretaries, Lalouette and Colas. His airs and his choruses are in the ballet style of the century. Only in recitative did he accomplish anything new. He wrote his operas at the same time Racine was producing many of his most famous tragedies. Racine, who was a master of verse and of declamation. And he modelled his recitative according to Racine's art of declamation. The great law of it is that it shall be syllabic, one syllable to one musical tone. Music is here in strict bondage to words. Le Cerf says that the recitative, as developed by Lully, is a just mean between tragic declamation 
and the art of music. According to Lionel de la Laurency, a comparison of Lully's recitative with the recitative of Carissimi or of Provenzale shows that Lully proceeded to a clearing of the Italian technique, cutting from it all the absurd weeds with the taste for bel canto, and even musical taste in the strict sense had let grow in the garden of melody. We have in the recitative of Lully, then, something that is not music, but a mean between declamation and music. Often stiff and monotonous, it is only rarely impassioned and effective. Always the words, the rhyme, and the verse are of paramount importance. In this regard, it was so much to the taste of the French audiences, of the précieux, that Lully's operas came to be valued far more for their recitative than for their airs. The recitative became not an artificial bond between airs and choruses, but the main burden of the opera, as indeed it should be, and in this respect he is a great reformer and akin to Monteverdi on the one hand and Gluck on the other. He is the founder of the admirable French style of declamation. Thus the opera of Lully and the opera of Scarlatti are strikingly different. Both were bound to a strict public convention, but Scarlatti wrote for the bel canto, Lully for declamation. The Italians craved the sensuous beauty of the voice in song and let the drama go. The French demanded intelligent declamation and sacrificed music. Of the two, the French opera was essentially more rational and nearer artistic truth, though even in Lully's lifetime it became wholly stereotyped and neither form, as it left the hands of its finisher, was capable of further development until infused with new life by a great reformer such as Gluck. To Lully as a musician belongs the credit of having given definite form to his overtures. The so-called French overture, as he established it, was generally in two parts or movements, the first slow and serious, the second lively and in vigorous fugal style. Sometimes a third movement, recalling the first, was added. These overtures were much admired in their day and during the next century, and the form was adopted by most of the German composers as the first movement of the orchestral suite, and by Handel for overtures to his oratorios. Lully seems to have been most successful in instrumental music of a noble and martial kind. Marches from his operas were actually played for soldiers in the field, and when the Prince of Orange wanted marches for his troops, he had recourse to Lully, who sent him one. All of Lully's airs, and especially his dance tunes, have a simplicity and clearness of outline which secure to them a popularity not forgotten even today. It is music easy to remember, vigorous in rhythm and in sentiment, positive and definite, often poor in harmony and grace, and never subtle, but on the other hand never vague or weak. As far as it goes, it goes unfalteringly, and with a sureness that challenges respect, and is at times superb. After the death of Lully, early in 1687, French opera subsisted upon what he had left it. There was no man to take over his supreme dictatorship, and until 1723, when Rameau began to write for the stage, no operas of any influence were written in Paris. Conventional form was too strong even for a man like Charpentier, whose musical gifts seems to have been higher than Lully's. Desmarais, Des Touches, and Campre 
are hardly more than imitators of Lully. Lully stands alone in the history of French opera during the 17th century, as absolute a despot in the realm of music as his great patron Louis XIV over the lands of Europe. He won his place by intrigue. He kept it by an enormous strength of will and perseverance and by shrewd observation of the court taste. There was no more genuine critical appreciation of music in France during the gorgeous reign of Louis XIV than there was in Italy, German or England at the same time. According to M. Combarieu, there was no more real public than there were true critics. A few wits writing verses and publishing their dislikes or their flatteries, their naive admiration for banal prowess and virtuosity. The mark of the king is on all music, music for the king's ballets, for the king's opera, for the king's suppers, for the king's fates, and above it all the haughty majestic king, Lully and Racine, Lully and Molière. In salon music, courtly elegance shines in miniature. After the death of Lully, a young man grew into prominence who was to win from the king his own appellation, the Great, François Couperin. He was born of a family of famous musicians in Paris in 1668. From 1693 he was organist to the king in the chapel at Versailles, and in 1696 he was elected organist of Saint-Gervais, a post which has been held for many years by the members of his family, but though he is said to have been an excellent organist, his fame now rests upon his skill in playing and writing for the clavecin. He was private teacher to princes and princesses, to the highest ladies of the land, and never by one note did he offend against the precise and elegant etiquette in the midst of which he was formed. He was an exquisite dainty stylist in music, a painter of delicate miniature portraits. Porcelain is not more fragile than his music, nor crystals of frost clearer cut. There is no suggestion of feeling too deep for elegance. A touch of courtly tenderness, a mood of courtly melancholy, are the nadir of his emotion. His little works for the clavecin are masterpieces of form and style. They never suggest the great power of music to express the fire of man's heart and the struggle of his soul. Lacking the daring brilliance of Scarlatti's sonatas, they are nonetheless perfectly suited to the thin, frosty instrument for which they were written. For many years they stood as perfect models of harpsichord style, and their influence can be traced in the works of all its contemporaries, even in those of J.S. Bach. Four sets of them were printed in 1713, 1717, 1722, and 1730. There are 27 suites, or ordres, each containing a varying number of little pieces which no longer bear dance names nor emphasize dance rhythms, but are given suggestive, dainty names after the style of Gautier and Chambonnier. Many of them are portraits of court ladies of the time. La Duce et Picante, La Majestueuse, L'Enchantresse, L'Engageante, la tendre récente, l'ingénue, etc. Others affect the fashionable pastoral romance, such as l'air bergerie, le barolet flottant, la fleurie, ou la tendre nanette. Others are bits of delicate realism, l'air petit moulant à vent, 
le carillon de citerre etc and a few have highly coloured names such as ferreux bachique and les enjouements bachiques besides these ordres he published transcriptions of works by corelli and lully which were called apothèse de corelli and apothèse de l'incomparable lully in all his work there is an unblemished purity of style a charm of melody a delicate sense of harmony they are all very highly ornamented with trills mordants turns etc which often sound too heavy on the modern pianoforte but which were necessary in music for the harpsichord with its thin tone and lack of all sustaining power his art of playing the harpsichord published in seventeen seventeen had an enormous influence a passage of it almost brings couperin court clavecinist before our eyes these are his directions for having a correct appearance when playing one should turn the body a little to the right while at the harpsichord do not keep the knees too close together have the feet parallel but the right foot a little forward one can easily correct oneself of the habit of making faces while playing by putting a mirror on the desk of the harpsichord it is much more becoming not to mark time with the head the body or the feet one must affect an easy appearance before the clavecin without looking too fixedly at any one object nor on the other hand looking vague look at the audience if there is one as if one were doing nothing in particular this for those who play without their notes undoubtedly here is a refinement of art which has never since been equalled a neatness and precision in every detail but it brought with it a self-consciousness and a suppression of virile emotion made of music an exquisite toy and of the musician a courtier couperin's music suffers more by being played on the modern pianoforte than that of his contemporaries scarlatti handel and bach the greater sonority of tone clouds the fragile perfect workmanship there is in it no depth of emotion nor daring brilliance to meet the strength of the new instrument as music they belong to their time as works of perfect art they are imperishable couperin died in seventeen thirty three just as the last and greatest of the french composers of this time jean-philippe rameau was about to bring out his first opera hippolyte et arici rameau was fifty years old his life had been hard and varied he had been organist in a provincial town he had published sets of pieces for harpsichord in paris he had published in seventeen twenty two a treatise on harmony the first of his many important works on that subject he had been engaged in writing ballets for the theatre and made himself a favourite music-master among ladies of high rank at the house of la Pupliniere, he had met voltaire and with him had written an opera samson which had been forbidden by the academy on the eve of its performance at last on the first of october seventeen thirty three hippolyte et arici was produced at the academy it brought a storm of abuse upon the composer who had dared to attempt more than a slavish imitation of lully he gradually won some respects and continued to write operas among which castor et pollux seventeen thirty seven commonly considered his masterpiece achieved a marked and continued success however no success would silence his detractors rousseau made himself the mouthpiece for those who cried him down 
and in 1746, just when he had succeeded in overcoming the violent hostility of the Lullists, a company of Italian singers at the Comédie Italienne won over a half of the Parisian public, so that Rameau found himself engaged in another and yet fiercer struggle as defender and head of French music against the Italian invaders. The malice and brutality of this famous Guerre des Buffons are incredible, but the whole affair points unmistakably to a state of society in which all critical judgment had given way to unenlightened prejudiced controversy. Rameau won but a temporary victory. After his death in 1764, Italian opera was supreme in Paris until the arrival of Gluck. Rameau's operas are aesthetically different from Lully's. Less skilful than Lully in recitative, he far excels him in genuineness of feeling and in harmony. Rameau was a great musician. His studies in harmony were profound and far-reaching in their effect, and the texture of his music was softened and warmly coloured by a richness of chords and modulation. His works for the harpsichord are not so polished as Couperin's, but are more virile, and the last set, 1736, shows the influence of Scarlatti. What is most striking about him is his independence of court life and convention. Lully was backed by the most powerful monarch in Europe, whose protection assured him success. Rameau had nothing to hope for from the debauched court of Louis XV, in spite of the official royal recognition. He withstood the most venomous attacks alone, and by the courage and power of his own will made himself head and champion of the music of his country. At the end of the 17th century, and the beginning of the 18th, Germany was under the influence of the French and of the Italians. In Hamburg there was the nearest approach to a national spirit. Hamburg was one of the most brilliant opera towns, but whereas in Dresden, Berlin, Munich and Vienna, the Italian opera was supreme, and Italian singers and Italian composers held sway. In Hamburg operas were the few exceptions given in German, and were furnished by German composers. It must be said, however, that most of the composers were strongly under the influence of the Italians or of Lully, and many of the libretti were translations or adaptations of Italian libretti. Chief among the composers stands Reinhard Kaiser, a man of loose principles and luxurious life, but of extraordinary musical facility. Apart from a great deal of sacred music, he wrote not less than 116 operas. It was while he was at the height of his fame that Handel came to Hamburg. At Hamburg also was Johann Matheson, first of all a singer under Kaiser, then a conductor and composer. But his compositions have all been forgotten, and he is important now only as the writer of Foundations for a German Role of Honour and The Complete Kapellmeister, both of which are the source of much that is known about German music previous and up to his time. The Roll of Honour is a series of short biographies of German composers. Living composers were asked to write an account of themselves for it. Bach seems to have been invited to do so, and to have declined the invitation. Matheson is also remembered for his duel with Handel. The most prolific of all composers in Germany was Telemann, friend of Matheson and Handel, but of his works nothing is remembered. Of more importance is Karl Heinrich Graun, who was head of the Italian opera in Dresden and Berlin, and whose Te Deum, composed after the victory of Frederick the Great at Prague, 
1756, and Todd Jesu are still heard. As precursor of Bach in the St. Thomas School in Leipzig, Kuhnau is of interest. He was a staunch musician of the old school, a man of remarkable learning. In the history of German clavier music, he is the most important figure before Bach. His Sonata aus dem B seems to be the first piece of clavier music in three movements, not dance tunes. They were published in Leipzig in 1695. In the next year appeared his Fresh Clavier Fruit, or Seven Sonatas, and after those his Biblical Sonatas, which are surely among the most curious records of music in an age gone by. They are frankly program music. Each sonata consists of a number of little pieces, illustrative of some story from the Bible. There are the story of David and Goliath, the story of Jacob and Leah, the story of Saul and David. It was an imitation of them that Bach wrote his only piece of program music, the Capriccio, on the departure of his brother to the wars. J. J. Fuchs was from 1698 to 1741 a court composer in Vienna, greatly beloved and admired. He is remembered more as a teacher than as a composer, and his textbook in the form of dialogues, Gradus ad Parnassum, was for a century one of the standard books on composition. In Dresden, the figure of Hasse, the Saxon, becomes prominent after 1731. He was perhaps the most successful opera composer of his day. Probably not a little of his success was due to the glorious singing of his wife, Faustina. Hasse, too, was a friend of Handel and of Bach. Kaiser, Matheson, Telemann, Graun, Hasse, Kuhnau, and a host of others, all prominent in their day, have been forever obscured by the glory of J. S. Bach and Handel. As we have chosen Purcell, Scarlatti, Corelli, Lully, Couperin, and Rameau to represent what the musical genius of England, Italy, and France was able to build upon the foundation of Italian experiment in the first half of the 17th century, so we must choose Bach and Handel to represent Germany. Germany was a little behind the other nations of Europe to present what the sum of a century was to her. This was partly owing to the destruction of the Thirty Years' War, from which she was slow to recover, partly because she had no central capital, like London and Paris, to foster the best of her native genius. Yet all the experiment, all the enthusiasm, all the labour of the seventeenth century are gathered up in the work of her two great sons. All other composers of all other nations are small besides their genius. End of section 25